interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thank you very much, Christian, and thank you all for coming here. It's a, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to come speak to this group. Uh, I look forward to our discussions over the day. I was asked to come speak about some reflections on the work that I and quite a number of other people here at Cornell and around the world do on the economics of poverty, and in particular to think about the economics of poverty from a Christian perspective. So. The reflections I'll offer today are, are in that spirit. Um, I believe a copy of the, the PowerPoint presentation will go up onto the Chesterton House website in due course, and, uh, and certainly a copy of my paper will be available there, um, or you can email me for it directly if you're interested. I would welcome comments on it. In this world of plenty, almost half of the world's six billion people live on $2 a day or less. Between a third and a half suffer undernutrition due to insufficient intake of macronutrients, calories and protein, or micronutrients such as iodine, iron, or vitamin A. And more than one child in five lives in acute poverty, meaning on a dollar a day per person or less. That's an especially troubling fact to someone like me who's a father of five children. Why does such unnecessary injustice disfigure a world that is rich, that is so technologically advanced? And perhaps most importantly, what can be done to care for the poor and thereby to honor God, a God that loves the poor no less than he loves those of us who are not poor. In attempting to answer those questions, at least partly, I want to share with you some of the insights of my discipline, economics, as well as my concerns about the limits of economic understanding to the humanitarian, intellectual, and spiritual challenges posed by global poverty. The Christian's interest in poverty is pretty obvious. Jesus has a special call to the poor and draws our attention to the plight of the poor and calls us to devote special energies to ministry to the poor. And there is a great deal of activity organized around caring for the poor in Christian ministries. I'm not going to speak, however, about direct assistance to the poor, the humanitarian imperative, and in particular humanitarian operations. It's not something on which I have any comparative advantage. And generally, economics as a discipline holds no comparative advantage in understanding how best to run humanitarian operations. Rather, economics as a discipline tends to focus on causal mechanisms, trying to understand the structural reasons why people behave in certain ways, why people suffer certain patterns of low welfare over time. And I'm going to focus my remarks on trying to understand these sorts of causal mechanisms and to draw out some of the implications of those causal mechanisms for the things that we ought to be doing individually and collectively. I should also remark before launching into the meat of the essay that most of this essay was composed a couple of weeks ago while I was in rural Madagascar for a couple of weeks. Madagascar is a fascinating place in which I've been working for uh, about 12 years now. Um, it's fascinating because it has an extraordinarily high species endemism rate that fuels fantastic interest by conservationists. It also is in a very unusual blend of Polynesian and Bantu cultures 
that make it of considerable interest to anthropologists. But such unique qualities aside, Malagasy culture and Malagasy society are really the prototypical poor country. Madagascar is overwhelmingly agricultural. Most of the population is poor. According to the most recent nationally representative household survey, 69.6% of the population of Madagascar lives below a poverty line equivalent to 42 cents a day U.S. per person. So a low poverty line with 70% of the people living below it. More than 80% of those poor people live in rural areas and depend upon agriculture for their well-being, either as farmers or as workers on others' farms. And they depend very heavily on the natural resource base, on God's creation, the soils, water, forests, and wildlife that are endowed in their areas. Because it typifies poor economies so well, in my opinion, I'll pepper my remarks today with various anecdotes and a few pictures from Madagascar. So please indulge the anecdotal evidence. The, just to recap, the basic figures that one ought to have in mind in thinking about poverty are that more than half of the world's population, about 3 billion people, live on $2 a day or less. A third to one half are undernourished and 20% of children at least live on less than a dollar a day. A family like this Gabra family from northern Kenya, living, as you can see, in a mobile hut of sticks and rags and cow dung, uh, a family like that faces reasonably grim prospects, unfortunately. Of this family of four children, when I took this picture, there were four children in the family. Uh, now there are only two children surviving in that family. And that is unfortunately not atypical of these sorts of communities. So let's talk about the economics of poverty. I begin with a quote from one of my favorite economists, T.W. Schultz. This comes from his Nobel Prize acceptance lecture. Most of the people in the world are poor, so if we knew the economics of being poor, we would know much of the economics that really matters. Most of the world's poor and they're living from agriculture. So if we knew the economics of agriculture, we would know much of the economics of being poor. Those are the opening words of the Nobel Prize address from 1979. And they're no less true today, 25 years later almost, than they were in 1979 when Schultz was at the peak of his career. So most of my remarks will focus around poor rural folk, the small farmers and landless laborers who comprise the too often invisible majority of the world's population, especially the world's poor. But we've learned a lot in the last quarter century. And most of my remarks are going to focus on how we've advanced in our understanding of the economics of poverty. Given this Christian audience, however, I'm going to hazard a highly unorthodox structure to the first part of this discussion, highly unorthodox, at least to my economist colleagues in this audience. Um, I'm going to organize my reflections on contemporary understandings of the economics of poverty around five broad themes of particular salience to Christians, hope, agency, discipleship, grace, and transformation. And my claim is that those five concepts, which are particularly relevant, I think, to any Christian, really capture the essence of what we've come to understand about the economics of poverty. Uh, you'll be able to tell me in about an hour's time after some of our panelists have gone whether you think I've actually got the right concepts. And I welcome challenges to that. Um, we don't usually use such labels in economic research, as you might guess. Uh, but perhaps this structure will be helpful in deciphering what is often a pretty incomprehensible jargon for non-economists. So let me start by talking about hope. 
Perhaps the most distressing characteristic, in my opinion, that one frequently encounters among the poor is hopelessness. I mean, hope is the root of our Christian faith, right? And the fact that we encounter people who are desperately poor and have very little prospect of climbing out of it, and as a consequence, express hopelessness routinely, is deeply troubling and something that ought to motivate many of us to seriously consider what we, as non-poor people, can do to inspire hope among the poor. So a general resignation to physical deprivation and material want is pretty ubiquitous in poor communities. Were these conditions driven out of an ascetic discipline, it would be unspeakably admirable. Unfortunately, it's not a choice for most people. It's something that they're compelled to accept, which makes it not admirable, but tragic. It's a passion experienced by the poor, and our Christian call is to compassion, to suffer with, to feel the passion of the poor, just as we feel the passion of our Lord on the cross. Now, economists have been coming to understand poverty, and especially the hopelessness spread by chronic poverty, in new and different ways, especially in the last decade. The traditional view of poverty is what I term a snapshot view. It's a cross-sectional view, based typically on a, a very rigorous set of measures known as the Foster Greer Thorbeck family of measures, uh, pioneered here at Cornell by colleagues of mine, I add with pride. And the Foster Greer Thorbeck set of measures gives us a very flexible way of representing the state of poverty in a particular population. So the most popular measure, the headcount measure, is merely a count of poor people divided by the total population. In other words, the proportion of a population that is poor at a given point in time. There are other measures, the poverty gap measure, which is the dollar value that would be necessary to lift all of the poor to the poverty line if you could perfectly target transfers to the poor. And there are more distributionally sensitive measures as well. And the FGT measures have been the, the bread and butter of poverty analysis and economics for 20 years now. They are merely a cross-sectional view, however. As I said, it's informative. In Madagascar, you have 69.6% of the population uh, is poor by the headcount measure. But there's an emerging dynamic video view that I think is much more informative and much more important as we start to think about what do we do about poverty, not just describing the existence of poverty, but understanding its implications for action. This dynamic video view of poverty in particular starts by distinguishing between transitory poverty and chronic or persistent poverty. Those people who may be poor for a brief moment in time, but have every expectation and every hope of not being poor for very long. And all of us who've been through graduate school, I think, understand the concept of transitory poverty. Right? Um, we had three children in graduate school. My wife and I certainly understood the concept of transitory poverty. And an important recent advance is that we've come to appreciate that much poverty is indeed transitory. That people are poor for a moment in time, but they exit very quickly. And they do this of their own accord. They don't really need a great deal of assistance. Government programs can be valuable in providing a safety net and accelerating people's natural climb out of poverty, but largely they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. This is admirable and it's important to pay attention to, not least of which because government programs can really mess up the natural process of people pulling themselves out of poverty if we're not careful about targeting and about incentives. But understanding transitory poverty is only the start. 
perhaps the best way to understand the difference between wealthy countries and poor countries is in understanding the difference between transitory and chronic poverty. In the United States, the median time in poverty is four and a half months. Somebody who's poor today has a 50-50 chance of being non-poor in five months' time. That's a remarkable statistic. The median time in poverty, I hazard to guess, in most of the communities in which I work is more than a lifetime. People don't exit poverty very quickly. In the United States, uh, our current cross-sectional poverty rate is 11.7%, seemingly very high. But of that 11.7%, less than 13% will be poor two years later. Your odds are pretty good if you're poor in the United States. It doesn't make the poverty any more appealing. It's no less tragic, but it is not persistent. It's not chronic. Roughly 1% of the American population is chronically poor, meaning will be poor for years on end without interruption. By global standards, that's a very, very small share. Poverty is not as big a problem in the United States as in the rest of the world, not because people aren't poor at a moment in time, but because they aren't persistently poor. They aren't trapped in poverty the way you are elsewhere. You can see this in this simple graphic where I've plotted comparative poverty dynamics. The blue curve on the bottom is the United States. This is based on 1993 to 95. That's actually typo data. Um, and the y-axis measures the of the population that is poor. At point zero on the x-axis, that's the cross-sectional or headcount poverty rate. How many people are poor at a moment in time? And then the curve traces out the share of the population that was poor at the beginning period and that remains poor in those future periods marked in years along the x-axis. The striking thing about the US graphic isn't that it starts off, in this case, at the high watermark of poverty in, in our lifetimes of 22% in 1993. The striking thing isn't how high that rate is, but how quickly it falls off. The slope, the downward slope of that graphic represents transitory poverty. People who are poor at a moment in time but exit reasonably quickly. And as you can see, that rate stabilized at around 2% after two years. Now contrast this with three of the sites in which I've been working with a number of collaborators for uh, several years in Madagascar, in the central and southern highlands of Madagascar, and in the northern drylands of Kenya. The green curve is from the highest potential zone of Madagascar. The central highlands of Madagascar have rich volcanic soils, abundant rainfall, a reasonably good road network, a functioning rail network. The president, the newly elected president of the country is an agribusinessman who comes from this very district. And this is what poverty looks like in the president's home area. You have roughly 40% of the people were poor at any given moment in time. And five years later, the rate is still nearly 30%. There's very little decline in poverty over an extended period of time in the richest part of Madagascar. We step now to the poorest part of Madagascar in the southern highlands in Fianaransu district. And in Fianaransu, you see that the decline in poverty is even less. In the Vakarankaratra, in the president's district, there's been very robust improvement in market infrastructure, development of commercial uh, agricultural processing that has really benefited uh, many small farmers considerably. Even then, it's missing most. But in places that don't enjoy that sort of robust, relatively robust growth, you can see that red line is nearly flat. Over five years, 
we've not seen much degradation in poverty rates. Now, when we go to the drylands of northern Kenya among pastoralist populations, semi-nomadic livestock producers, you find even lower rates of decrease in poverty over time. And I call your attention to the poverty lines involved here. In the U.S., the poverty line is roughly, and I say roughly because depending upon family size, the exact dollar per capita per day figure varies, but it's roughly $15 a day. The poverty line I'm using for these three sites in which we work is 25 cents a day per person. So the poverty lines are radically different, and yet we still find very few people able to climb above 25 cents a day per person over extended periods of time. It's not just the magnitude of the poverty rate, it's the nature, chronic or transitory, and the duration of poverty that differs between wealthy and poor communities. And that extended duration of poverty is really a source of hopelessness that one hears routinely among poor peoples. And I submit that that is really the greatest concern we ought to have about the economics of poverty, that the duration of poverty causes people to lose hope. They don't have the promise of any material improvement in their lives, and they have every expectation of having several of their children not living to adulthood. This emerging dynamic or video view of poverty, of the economics of poverty, and the growing appreciation of the hopelessness induced by chronic poverty gives particular salience to the concept of poverty traps, a concept that I and a number of others have been working on for the last few years. Poverty traps into which people can fall and have difficulty escaping. Scholars are slowly coming to appreciate the chronic poverty associated with apparent poverty traps may be widespread, especially in rural areas of the developing world, and that the causality and the appropriate policy responses to poverty traps is very different than that for transitory poverty. We just have to think about poverty and the instruments at our disposal in a different way. With that in mind, it's important now to think about the next key concept, which is agency. The essence of the poverty trap, and this is a point that is routinely misunderstood, the essence of the poverty trap is that one chooses to stay in a situation that almost surely implies a life of poverty. That one chooses poverty, which seems like an absurd concept until you think carefully about the choices available to people. It's not that people do this thoughtlessly. It's that the best option they have is pretty grim. It's not that people are entirely powerless over their circumstances. The blessing of creation is that God gives humans freedom to choose. But not everybody's choice set is particularly good. And the real task we face in development projects and in economic policy making and in individual action is to improve the choice that's faced by poor peoples, to help them escape poverty traps. Now, the essence of the poverty trap is a concept of thresholds, that there's a threshold over which somebody has to climb. Without thresholds, all poverty would be transitory, with everybody accumulating productive assets until they converged on a single equilibrium income level. This is the root of neoclassical economic growth theory. Robert Solow won a Nobel Prize for most clearly articulating growth theory quite a number of years ago. But the essence of macroeconomic growth theory is convergence, is that the poor are the highest return place in which to invest. And so ultimately, the poor accumulate faster than the rich until everybody converges. But there's abundant evidence. I mean, this is obvious to everybody except for economists at some level, that non-convergence is the rule, not convergence. 
And so for the last 20 or so years, there has just been a boom industry in empirical investigation and formal analytical modeling of new economic growth theory, of non-ergodic growth theory, of explaining non-convergence and offering the micro foundations of poverty traps, trying to explain why we don't see such convergence. This nonetheless remains a very underexplored area, I contend. Um, we know relatively little about the ideology of poverty traps, and what little we know is not yet being nearly as effectively deployed as it could be. One thing we do know is that financial market failures are absolutely central to poverty traps. There are a variety of reasons for such failures, but the bottom line problem is that the poor cannot manage to separate current consumption and expenditure from current income. And when income is highly variable, it means that they cannot invest and that they offer, often suffer irreversible damage, nutritional damage in particular. So a household like that with these two young girls who you see threshing and winnowing rice for their family's meal in Madagascar, a family like this winds up being wholly dependent upon what little they can bring in from rice cultivation and from selling a few other crops and from occasionally selling a bit of casual labor for wages on the market. And that's highly variable across seasons. The variability in their income, absent a market for credit, and the variability in their incomes, absent a market for insurance to cushion them when locusts invade and happen to eat up a good share of their crop, means that they wind up having to divest themselves of productive assets. They sell off their land. They take their kids out of school. They sell off their livestock. And that means that their expected earnings in future periods is reduced. That because they can't borrow and because they can't insure, whatever happens to hit them today, even though it may be a one-off shock, it's propagated into the future. Let me give you two examples from Madagascar um, from conversations I had just, in, just last month. There's a gentleman in a little village called Yandratsai along a river of the same name in Madagascar Central Highlands who was explaining to me how he sells rice immediately after the harvest because he has to pay a few of the workers that, uh, that he hires to help with harvest and he has to pay his children's school fees, which only amount to about a dollar and a half a month. They're not terribly important from our perspective, but that's a quite a sum of money from his perspective. So he sells this rice. Six months later, he buys back even more rice. He's a net buyer of rice. Madagascar is a rice economy par excellence. They consume more rice per capita than any nation on earth, more than the Chinese or the Vietnamese or the Thais. Yet 60% of rice farmers in Madagascar are net buyers of rice. They consume more rice than they grow, which is a statement about technological capabilities, and I'll come to that in a moment. So this farmer, like most other rice farmers in Madagascar, buys back rice six months later at what, if you work out the numbers, is effectively an 85% increase in price over six months. That is equivalent to a 300% per annum compound interest rate. I don't think any of us take out 300% per year loans. That's what this guy has to do because there isn't a credit market. He uses the rice market as a quasi-credit instrument. And that is very widespread. Nature abhors a vacuum. And when there's a vacuum in financial markets, people find other means to de facto get credit insurance. It's very costly. And those costs wind up often precluding their capacity to accumulate the assets that they need to grow out of poverty. 
This same gentleman was telling me how if he could just get the equivalent of $60, he could upgrade from his one local indigenous breed Zebu cow to a crossbred European cow that would generate substantially higher milk yields, at least double the milk yields. And when you work out based on the milk price, what the additional milk yield would generate and how long it would take him to recoup that roughly $60, it's just over a month. It would only take him about a month of having that better cow to make back the 60 bucks. But he can't get the 60 bucks. He cannot borrow that relatively modest amount of money it takes to help him climb onto a new trajectory with a regular stream of reasonably good income. This is a poverty trap. That's a paradigmatic case of a poverty trap. Another case of poverty traps in Madagascar in the same general region concerns a, a remarkable new rice production technology called the system of rice intensification, or SRI, um, in which Cornell has been very heavily involved. SRI is remarkable for several reasons. First, it was developed in Madagascar. It wasn't developed in the West and ported over. It was developed by a French missionary priest who had spent his lifetime working in rural Madagascar. And just by observing and experimenting, came up with a suite of, of changes in agronomic practices that routinely double and triple yields on small farmers' fields with no purchased inputs, no improved seed, no chemical fertilizer, no mechanization, just changing water management and weeding and spacing and timing and such things. Remarkable changes in yields. Yet work done by one of my graduate students shows that the poor aren't picking up this technology, which seems incredible. This seems like the paradigmatic small farmer technology. You don't have to buy anything and it doubles your yields, so this should be of particular interest to the poor. Well, why don't they pick it up? Two reasons, primarily. One is that they can't afford to finance again. SRI takes a bit more labor up front. It doubles or triples labor productivity when you count harvest divided by total labor hours put in, but harvest is many months later. And today, you have to put more, more time in up front. The poorest farmers today have to work for other people to get cash to get food for their families. They can't not eat for six months. So just that financing problem creates a barrier that you can't afford the extra labor investment to undertake a highly promising technology. The other big problem is coordination failures. Water management is very important in SRI. It actually uses less water than traditional rice production technologies because the water doesn't stand on the fields. Water sinks into the root zone. But small farmers operating in irrigated perimeters surrounded by other small farmers have to coordinate their water management. Basically, everybody has to go to SRI or nobody goes to SRI. And the failure to coordinate amongst one another means that small farmers who recognize the promise and who could perhaps afford the labor up front can't do it because they can't manage the water. So these sorts of coordination failures, inter-household coordination failures, which also exist at much higher levels, failures to coordinate between villages, between governments as we see today, unfortunately, in the world. I mean, these sorts of coordination failures are also a big part of poverty traps. The point of these anecdotes is that any solid understanding of the etiology of chronic poverty must confront the central role of human agency. People rationally choose strategies that leave them poor because superior options just aren't available given the incentives that they face and the constraints that they face. If one wants to help the poor, you have to create technologies that are accessible, not just impressive. Most people don't face very good choices in life. This graphic shows you data from 1,079 households in rural Rwanda. It underscores that not everybody's choice set is the same. We have four different plots here. 
the leftmost curve, the, I should explain the graphic, the y-axis is cumulative frequency, the x-axis is total household income. So as you move out, people are richer. The left curve here, the, the black curve, is people who are only farming and working on others' farms. So they don't have any skilled employment and they don't have enough land to fully absorb all of their household labor. This curve, the red curve, is people who are full-time farmers. Farming wholly absorbs their household labor. They don't work for anybody else, but they don't do anything other than farming. They don't have any skills, any shops, any businesses. By contrast, come down here to the blue curve, and this is what I call a mixed-skilled-only strategy. These are people who are farming. They own a farm, but they also own businesses. They're skilled artisans, etc. Now, economists term this ordering of distributions first-order stochastic dominance, which means that if you were told, pick one of these four, and then I'm going to randomly draw your income from this distribution, nobody, absolutely nobody, would ever choose the black curve. You would always choose the blue curve, right? Indeed, you wouldn't choose the black curve even over the red curve. The fact that we observe about 40% of the Rwandan households on the black curve is a statement that they don't have the choice to go to the red, green, or blue curves. They don't have the land to get to the red curve to wholly absorb all their labor, and they don't have the skills or the capital to invest in procuring equipment or opening up businesses to move to the blue curve. Their choice set is inferior to everybody else's. Initial conditions matter. This leads naturally to this third concept that I want to introduce to organize my thinking about the economics of poverty, the concept of discipleship. A disciple eschews comfort and complacency in favor of constant seeking for new insights and challenges around a single core truth. That's certainly the challenge of Christian discipleship, for all of us to continue to grow in our understanding of and love of God and our understanding of God's will for us. But discipleship pertains no less to the economics of poverty. The poor must be willing and able to learn new skills and technologies and to uncover and exploit new market opportunities if they are to climb out of poverty traps. The poor's assets are really embodied in two things, their labor power and the agricultural land that they control. Those two assets comprise, I would estimate, I don't have hard data on this, I would estimate easily 80% of the productive asset capacity of three-quarters of the world's poor. So if we can focus on improving labor productivity and improving agricultural productivity, we can equip the poor to be able to climb out of poverty of their own accord. This doesn't take, doesn't take regular transfers. That's all about technology and education. And perhaps the most basic lesson of Bob Solo's classic Nobel Prize winning work is that economic growth requires technological change that diminishing returns means just adding assets doesn't get us there. Additional assets inevitably wind up being depleted pretty quickly in their marginal returns. We only wind up enjoying sustainable growth in welfare by increasing the productivity of the assets that we hold. And that increase in productivity comes from two things, technological change and improved education. Economists and international donors would do well to keep this in mind because I've yet to meet a small farmer who wasn't keen to be able to acquire improved technologies or who wouldn't go to phenomenal lengths to keep their children in school. 
The problem here is not an attitudinal one among the poor. The problem is the opportunities available to the poor. The research of another Nobel laureate, Bob Fogel, emphasizes similarly that technological change has been the primary driver of all significant improvements in recorded human history, in physical stature, in nutritional improvement, and in life expectancy. More recently, in the 60s and 70s, what came to be known as the Green Revolution, remarkable increases in agricultural productivity due to improved cultivars, improved seed types, and the use of fertilizer and irrigation and, uh, and farm machinery, increased food availability per capita and small farmer productivity at a historically unprecedented rate, and earned a plant breeder the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. A plant breeder got the Nobel Peace Prize. That's a remarkable concept, but it underscores the importance of agricultural technologies to poverty alleviation and the condition of the world at large. Unfortunately, we've backed off of a successful strategy. We used to invest very heavily as a nation and as a world, the OECD countries as a set. We used to invest very heavily in education in the third world and very heavily in agricultural technology development. But we've started to fail at this. This graphic shows us in blue the United States foreign assistance as a percent of GDP, or GNP, excuse me, which peaked in the early 60s in the Kennedy-Johnson era at around 0.7% of GDP and is today less than 0.1% of national product. The red line depicts the real dollars going into international foreign assistance, so inflation-adjusted dollars. You can see these two track each other quite nicely, as they should. I mean, they're measuring the same thing. It's just different ways of depicting the same, same basic phenomenon. That there was remarkably great foreign assistance out of the United States in the 60s and into the 70s, and it collapsed in the 70s, remained roughly stable through the 80s, and has collapsed again in the last decade or so. What I don't show here, but I've shown in other papers, is that the share of this assistance going to humanitarian relief as opposed to investment in improved technologies and education and other sorts of proper development flows, the share to development flows has been decreasing over the same period. So we're basically spending nothing anymore on creating the opportunities for discipleship, on facilitating education and technology development. Um, this is a very basic lesson that we're missing. And it's not a new lesson. I mean, at one level, Paul told us about this two millennia ago. Second Corinthians for you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. I think Paul basically gave us the instructions about foreign assistance two, two millennia ago, but we've somehow forgotten this. This leads me to the fourth concept around which I think we've learned a great deal about the economics of poverty, grace. Income is merely the product of the assets we hold and the rate of return on those assets. It's really that simple. So chronic poverty is all about not holding enough assets or having insufficient productivity of the assets we hold. And human agency plays a very important role in this, as just discussed. Nevertheless, much progress and most fortune is fortuitous, albeit predictable. My father's 
probably favorite phrase as I was growing up was, you make your own breaks. And I think there's great wisdom in that, and wisdom that we've not yet fully internalized in my discipline. There are consequences to our actions, to be sure, but our choices are in no sense deterministic. We merely change the probability distribution from which we draw. Outcomes are grace. We don't decide whether we get home safely today or whether a driver crosses the median strip and front ends our car. We don't decide much that really matters in our lives. We change the, the probability distributions. We change the odds, to be sure. For example, I'm not a tenured professor in an Ivy League university because I'm smarter or harding wor harder working than everybody who's not. I'm a tenured faculty member in an Ivy League university because I've been luckier than everybody who is at least as smart or hardworking as I am, and that's a very large population who's not an Ivy League professor. That's a nuanced difference that's very important to keep in mind, I think. Grace is this very central component of the observed welfare, especially of poor populations. And this is one of the reasons why I so enjoy going to rural villages. I'm routinely reminded that I could not begin to do much of what I see small farmers doing. The workloads that they carry, the pace that they keep, just their perseverance, I, I don't think, frankly, I would have the fortitude, physical, mental, spiritual, to do much of it. So I, I am not non-poor because I'm somehow better than they are. The problem here is that God's grace is no less present in the lives of the poor. And it's not that grace is only something bestowed upon the rich, right? I mean, that, that would be anathema to any Christian. But grace is manifest in starkly different ways. And material fortune is bestowed on the rich. The poor have not been as materially lucky as we have been. But luck is a really important component of it that we systematically underestimate. Statisticians tell us that people routinely find signals in things that are utterly random. People are constantly searching for causal, deterministic explanations of things that have no deterministic explanation. It's the way we're wired for some reason. But we don't appreciate this fully. Grace explains a great deal of chronic poverty. Most of the poor just haven't been as lucky as we have been. And perhaps the easiest way to understand this is the persistence of intergenerational poverty. Unfortunately, I know of no study of this in the developing world, but there have been some very good studies of this in the United States. In the United States, which recall has this phenomenally high proportion of the poor who are transitorily poor, and you know, less than 13% of the poor today will remain poor in two years. But in the United States, what we do understand is that a child born in the bottom 10% of the family income distribution today has a greater than 15% greater than 50% chance of being in the bottom 20% of the income distribution as an adult. What we do understand based on recent research is that about 65% of a father's earning, earnings differentials relative to the mean in the population persist to his children. And that that income transmission elasticity, the intergenerational income elasticity is increasing. It's been increasing over the past 20 years. Now, clearly we aren't born deserving the material and genetic endowments we receive and that we use those later on for our own income. So the intergenerational transmission of earnings is one of the clearest signals that I can think of of the role of grace in understanding poverty and conversely riches. Um, the poor perhaps understand this idea of grace best because when you ask the poor to define poverty, they most frequently talk about vulnerability. 
They most frequently talk about insecurity. They don't talk about low incomes. There's a wonderful set of studies run by the World Bank as part of their 2000-2001 World Development Report program called the Voices of the Poor series. The Voices of the Poor series went about and interviewed groups and individuals all over the world. Uh, it's a four or five volume set now. I've lost track of how many volumes they produced. But it's fascinating to read this. And one thing that keeps coming out is that the poor don't define their poverty by their incomes. They define it primarily by the risk that they face. And this is not surprising at one level. In Madagascar, even in a good year, 2000, 2001 was a very good agricultural year in Madagascar. Even in a good year, only 21% of the cultivated plots did not suffer some sort of natural shock. Flooding, drought, pests, these locusts that you see in this picture coming in over rice fields. This was a good year, and only 21% of the plots didn't suffer significant yield shocks. In other work we've done in West Africa, we uncover that the median farmer is getting maximal potential output from his field once you control for all of these shocks. When you fail to control for these shocks, they're getting less than half of what they should be able to get. The variability people face is one of the biggest sources of their poverty. And farmers will rationally trade off yield for shock resistance. It's not just that poverty breeds insecurity, it's also that insecurity breeds poverty. People are not foolish. They avoid big downside risks, even at big costs. And so understanding how to mitigate the risk faced by the poor is central to any sensible approach to reducing poverty. Um, yeah, sorry, I should have flipped to this slide earlier. This is, this is a picture that I think captures this notion of intergenerational transmission well. That's my son on the left chatting with a boy who's only two years younger than he is in one of the villages in which I work, in Gambo, in Boringo District in Kenya. So he's handing him one of those little magic erase boards where you write things and pull up the plastic and the writing goes away. And this picture symbolizes to me the difference, that these are two children who are very, very different and not because of something that they've done in their childhood, but just because of the families into which they were born and particularly the places into which they were born. That boy's father died of AIDS and his mother is struggling to raise a family with just a few goats and sheep. And she has no education and there's really no employment prospects in this area. And that's a very different world than my son faces, fortunately for me and my son. But this notion of, of grace being behind differences, cross-sectional differences in poverty, I think is really well captured by just looking at a picture of two children from very different cultures side by side. The last concept that I want to talk about that I think helps us to understand the economics of poverty is the notion of transformation. And this comes back to this point about thresholds. The point of the preceding discussion is that by grace, be it in the form of a stock of productive assets we inherit, or a positive shock to the productivity of our assets, or to the price of what we, uh, the price of the things we sell that we produce from our assets, that by grace we can be non-poor. There are tipping points out there. There are thresholds, and once one passes these thresholds, the natural dynamics of growth take over, and people can climb out of poverty. The poverty trap concept revolves around the existence of thresholds of what in technical terms we call unstable dynamic equilibria. This is a picture from some research I've done in, in Ethiopia depicting exactly such a phenomenon. This graphic depicts on the y-axis 
herd sizes in some future period as a function of herd sizes today. Now, this is in logarithmic terms, so my apologies to those who don't think in logs. It makes things much more manageable sometimes when you have highly asymmetric distributions. But this curve, this red curve, plots the decadal transitions. This is a statistical estimate. It's a non-parametric regression for those who care about such things. It's a statistical best estimate of what is the expected herd size tomorrow given herd size today. So the log of zero is one. If I have one animal today, I expect to have one animal tomorrow. This is a stable dynamic equilibrium where people have one cow in perpetuity, you know, over decades at a time. Notice that this curve dips below this 45-degree black line. The 45-degree black line is dynamic equilibrium. Dips below that, comes above it, and dips below it again. This is an unstable dynamic equilibrium right here, about 12 to 15 animals, meaning this is a tipping point. Once you get beyond about 12 or 15 animals in southern Ethiopia, you can migrate. You have enough animals now to kick out milk and blood to keep your herders alive on long-distance treks in search of forage and water that will keep the herd alive. Once you have less than 12 or 15 animals, the herders can't survive the trek, so they don't trek, and you keep a herd in place. But in a land characterized by tremendous spatiotemporal variability in rainfall and forage availability, those herds just don't survive. They die in place, and involuntarily sedentarized pastoralists wind up crawling down this trajectory until they've got one animal and they're trying to grow teff and maize in rain-fed agriculture in southern Ethiopia, which is a kind of grim existence, I assure you. But if you can get on the other side of that tipping point, if you can get to 15 animals or beyond, you can migrate. The trekkers are very good at finding water and grass. And they grow their herds pretty, pretty reliably once they can migrate in search of water and grass and they get to a dynamic equilibrium herd size of 60 to 75 animals. Pretty decent herd size. I mean, they have a pretty decent existence. This is an interesting case where among pastoralists in the drylands of the Horn of Africa in northern Kenya and southern Ethiopia, we find that nutritional status is far better among the rural mobile populations than among urban populations. Town-based peoples are in bad, bad shape in this area because they're the involuntarily sedentarized. They're not there because they've got some nice government job. They're there because they're not mobile anymore. These tipping points exist in much of the world. This is just one illustration of them that I can document and explain easily as a product of capacity to migrate. Um, but we're working on trying to understand these sorts of tipping points in other phenomena like adoption of that rice technology in Madagascar I was describing earlier. This gentleman, Mr. Rajan Narisun, from uh, a little village called Mbato Mainti, you're looking at him against one of his rice fields on an irrigated perimeter in the central highlands of Madagascar. This, this gentleman told me a remarkable story a few weeks ago. He told me about how 25 years ago, his father died shortly after he was married, and he inherited a tiny little parcel of land, about 20 Rs, in other words, one-fifth of a hectare, uh, in other words, about half an acre. This was what he needed to support his family on, and I know I couldn't do that, and I don't think he could either, but a government project in cooperation with the Norwegian government had a program that gave him a dairy cow and that helped teach him how to take care of that dairy cow and how to keep the milk fresh and palatable and safe. And then after a number of years, the 
now president of Madagascar developed a business called Tico, which started sending trucks up the roads every day to collect milk from small farmers like Mr. Rajan Narisun. And the next thing you know, this guy's got a herd of six animals. He's bought land. He's farming more than a hectare of rice. He's using this technology SRI in about half of his rice fields. His children are all in school or have finished secondary school. He proudly trots out his livestock husbandry certificate he got 20 years ago to anybody who asks about his history. And he basically attributes his current success to this gift of the dairy cow. That 20 odd years ago, he got a dairy cow and that made all the difference in the world. That just bumped him over the edge so that he had regular cash and enough food coming into the household through milk to be able to invest in building a herd, accumulating more land, adopting better rice technologies, and putting his kids in school. Remarkable and very hopeful story. You can make a difference. And it doesn't take millions of dollars. A dairy cow in this place costs you about $150. And this is the highest priced area of Madagascar in which to get you know, European crossbred dairy cows. So the, the final point that I wanted to make around the economics of poverty then is that it really is about grace, about agency, about transformation, and ultimately about creating the opportunity for hope that people aren't condemned to lives of poverty and their children aren't going to be poor. Their children aren't going to be poor for years on end. Economics can help us in understanding this, but economics is badly lacking in some crucial areas. And I'd like to close just by a few thoughts on the poverty of economics. I really believe that economics has a very powerful toolkit that has not yet begun to be fully exploited uh, to benefit the world's poor. There's a great deal of thoughtful stewardship that we can promote through careful application of economic research to the problems of poverty. But it's equally true, unfortunately, that the powerful tools of my discipline have sometimes become idols unto themselves. This is of particular concern to those of us who work in poor communities because the fundamental assumptions that underpin most contemporary economic theory are very socioculturally specific. They don't particularly apply to a lot of the villages that I work in. It's hard to see some of the behaviors that I see in a micro textbook that I hand to my graduate students in the behaviors I observe among small farmers in Madagascar and Kenya and Ethiopia. And I think that this leads to a misplaced confidence in our toolkit a misplaced confidence in the robustness of the results of our analytical models and in the appropriateness of all of our empirical tools. And in particular, many of the core problems of poverty don't lend themselves to quantification. Problems of hopelessness, problems of insecurity, problems of vulnerability are pretty hard to deal with well. We can scratch at the surface, but we have to do this in partnership with others because economics is itself poor. It's still palpably lacking in essential ingredients to really make a difference on its own. We have to work with others. So let me describe quickly the, a couple of key areas where I think economics is poor. First is in the metrics of poverty. Economists understand just as well as anybody else that poverty is not income. We can't reduce the condition of the poor to the level of their income or the amount in their bank account. But we rely on measurable indicators. So we'll go to child anthropometric status, we'll go to literacy rates or educational attainment or other sorts of easily measurable things. The danger here, of course, is that economists' emphasis on physical indicators, things we can easily measure, 
may unwittingly contribute to a reductionist approach that emphasizes the material and the measurable over the non-material and the non-measurable. The gospel message plainly is that the material is not the most important metric. We don't know how to deal with this particularly well in economics. Uh, there are some very bright people struggling to understand how to accommodate non-material concerns and constraints and preferences in behavior, but we're not there yet. Um, one particular example that I offer here that's long troubled me is the way economists approach labor issues, the value of work. Economists' conception of labor is that it's simply a way to transform the stock of time one has available into a flow of income. And a really refined advanced notion is that people also value leisure and therefore that labor has some disutility associated with it. And so people are constantly trading off the disutility of work against the benefits of material consumption that come from earning an income. But is that really the value of work? I mean, that should be a very troubling notion to most Christians because it tells us that the value of work lies purely in the income that's created, that the value of the worker is that which he creates rather than his createdness. Human dignity isn't a product of what we do, of what we create, of what we earn. Human dignity is a product of the fact that God made us in God's image. And we don't know how to value that. We've struggled with this in economics. There are tremendous debates about labor allocation behaviors in the labor economics literature. And I've got some very distinguished colleagues here on campus who know this literature much better than I do, so I'm not going to wander into an area where I have no expertise. But what strikes me is that we still haven't figured out how to capture the important non-material benefits of labor. And as a consequence, we almost surely undervalue the role of employment generation in poverty reduction. Work helps to define people's identities. People identify themselves by their professions. And their professions typically are the skills that God has given them. Their identity becomes linked to their work and their identity is the manifestation of the gifts God gives them to use to God's glory. But we don't capture this. Employment creation is central to letting people realize God's plan for them. But we've not yet really figured this one out. Powerlessness. The... Waswahili peoples of coastal East Africa have a wonderful kitanduili, as they call it, proverb. Which means, translated into English, when elephants fight, the grass gets hurt. Um, in a certain level, this summarizes everything one needs to know about poverty. When elephants fight, the grass gets hurt. Discussion about governance and corruption is quite a cottage industry in economics right now, and justifiably so. Um, I can assure you that there is lots of corrupt and venal behavior, unfortunately, at all levels of governments in most of the countries in which I work. It's very troubling. It's not clear to me that the corruption or venality of leadership in rural Madagascar or rural Kenya is necessarily the corruption, venality, or selfishness that we ought to be most concerned about, however. Um, what about the power and the power of greed and superficial pandering to base interests in our own communities and in our own politics? We spend right now as a world less than $50 billion a year on foreign assistance, humanitarian assistance and development and investments combined. We spend, by contrast, better than $300 billion, more than six times as much, on farm subsidies, almost a billion dollars a day in the EU, Japan, and the US goes to farm subsidies that benefit less than half of the farmers 
in the EU, Japan, and the US, and benefit not the poorest half of the farmers in the US, in the EU, and Japan, I would add. While most of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day, the Europeans provide subsidies in an average of better than $2.5 a cow in Europe. And the Japanese at more than $6 a cow in Japan. Now, if, if that doesn't strike all of us as absurd, I'm not quite sure what does. Understanding the political economy of farm subsidies in the United States may seem a world away from thinking about poverty in rural Kenya and Madagascar, but I assure you it's not. It's all about our priorities. It's about where we are putting our resources. We're putting them into sustaining political patronage in the United States, and we're abandoning our moral responsibilities to tend to the poor, even though, as I showed you before, we've done it in the past, and we know the basic recipes. We know that it's investing in agricultural technology and in education, that those are the biggest return things. The geographer Michael Watts has a wonderful term for manifestations of hurting the poor through, the combat, through, through battles among the, the wealthy, not necessarily physical combat. He has a book entitled Silent Violence. Uh, about his studies in northern Nigeria. And I think that title captures much of the problems of powerlessness with which we economists just are really not well equipped to grapple. But they're terribly important. Vulnerability is another concept that is really important to understanding poverty, and yet we economists just are not getting this right. And I say this as somebody who's done a large share of my work on the economics of risk. I do a lot of work on risk and poverty. And I can assure you that most of what I have done is just wrong. Um, and not because I don't care about it, but because we don't have a very good toolkit to understand vulnerability and risk particularly well. The poor face a lot more risk than the rich do. Um, Bill Easterly, in a wonderful recent book that I commend to all of you called The Elusive Quest for Growth, uh, Economist Adventures and Misadventures in the Tropics. It's MIT Press, I think, 2000 one or 2002. Uh, Bill is an economist at New York University now who spent many years at the World Bank and writes about, as he terms it, the misadventures of bank economists in trying to combat poverty. And Bill reports that between 1990 and 1998, poor countries accounted for 94% of the world's 568 major natural disasters and 97% of disaster-related deaths. Recall that the poor are only half the population, yet they got 97% of disaster-related deaths and 94% of the disasters, regardless of whether these caused human death or not. The rural poor are far more likely to fall victim to violent crime, we find, than our urban residents, and they're several times more likely to suffer injury or illness than are the rich worldwide. Plainly understanding risk and vulnerability is central to understanding poverty, but our conceptualization and analytical treatment of risk leaves a lot to be desired. We conceptualize risk as curvature of a fictive utility function. Um, aside from the fact that non-economists in the room probably have no clue what any of that means, which is in and of itself, I think, a bit of a problem, this implies two things. One, we can't distinguish between risk preferences and time preferences. We can't distinguish between not caring as much about the future as we do about the present and not being able to, and, and not wanting to suffer high variability in incomes. We simply can't do it. We have to shut down one side or the other, shut down uncertainty or shut down intertemporal preferences to really do this right. The other implication is that we focus on variance as an empirical statistical measure of risk. But how many of you are concerned about winning the lottery? Nobody, right? We don't worry about the upside. 
The concept of vulnerability is not about upside perturbations. It's about downside perturbations. And we haven't yet really got our analytics or our empirical toolkit set up quite right to handle downside movements terribly well. Finally, the moral underpinnings of the economy. One of the important implications of a lot of recent work on risk and vulnerability among poor populations is that risk is far more individual specific or idiosyncratic, as we like to term it, than we had long believed. That most risk is actually specific to households and individuals and not common to communities. Even among the pastoralists I was showing you, which you might think of, these nomadic bands that roam the plains together, you might think of them as kind of rising and falling together depending upon rainfall and warfare. But even among those pastoralists, we can barely reject the null hypothesis that there is no covariate risk, that all risk to herd sizes is idiosyncratic, is household specific. Now, an implication of idiosyncratic risk being really central to the broader vulnerability of poor peoples is that there's the capacity within communities to manage this. Because my risk is not Paul's risk or Steve's risk. We each have kind of separate movements. So if we could coordinate among ourselves, and recall the discussion of, of water management for SRI, SRI earlier, if we could coordinate among ourselves, we could probably reduce a lot of this risk. The failure to be able to reduce vulnerability among poor populations is often reflective of failures at community level to work out cooperative arrangements among peoples. Why is this? We don't really know is the most fundamental answer. But part of this seems to have something to do with moral underpinnings. There's, there's an economist in, in Belgium, Jean-Philippe Plateau, who wrote a wonderful two-piece series in 1994 uh, called Behind the Market Stage, where he talks about the role of, and he uses game theoretic reasoning to explain this, the role of enforcement mechanisms, government and private enforcement mechanisms, to keep people honest, and how this, this just doesn't get us as far as we need to get. That ultimately there's a central place of generalized morality, of people just treating one another decently, of adhering to basic codes of conduct, moral obligations, dare I say, as an economist, um, that this matters to the relief of chronic poverty, to the realization of technological and market opportunities that are central to increasing incomes and reducing poverty. Where generalized morality and trust deteriorate, powerlessness and vulnerability and poverty increase. It's pretty simple, but we don't begin to have the tools to come to grips with this as economists. This is really the domain of theologians and philosophers and to a lesser degree, other social scientists, sociologists and anthropologists. Let me conclude just by remarking that I hope and expect that the discussants are going to challenge some of what I've said because there's no unique Christian approach to economics, much less the economics of poverty. Um, and I've tried to advance some some, some fairly bold claims and organize my remarks in a, in a very unorthodox fashion, at least for an economist. Um, I'd like to close just by offering you a portion of Nelson Mandela's inaugural address, which I think is really a nice way to capture what I see as our responsibilities as Christian academics and as Christians regardless of our profession towards the poor. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, or fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure about, around you. 
We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is, within, that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. We are liberated from our own fear. Our presence automatically liberates others. Thank you very much.